This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London right now. Domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 38. I think my left side is going, Wolf Larsen wrote the morning after his attempt to fire the ship. The numbness is growing. I can hardly move my hand. You will have to speak louder. The last lines are going down. Are you in pain? I asked. I was compelled to repeat my question loudly before he answered. Not all the time. The left hand stumbled slowly and painfully across the paper, and it was with extreme difficulty that we deciphered the scrawl. It was like a spirit message, such as are delivered at seances of spiritualists for a dollar admission. But I am still here, all here, the hand scrawled more slowly and painfully than ever. The pencil dropped, and we had to replace it in the hand. 
When there is no pain, I have perfect peace and quiet. I have never thought so clearly. I can ponder life and death like a Hindu sage. And immortality? Maud queried loudly in the ear. Three times the hand essayed to write, but fumbled hopelessly. The pencil fell. In vain we tried to replace it. The fingers could not close on it. Then Maud pressed and held the fingers about the pencil with her own hand, and the hand wrote, in large letters, and so slowly that the minutes ticked off to each letter, B. O. S. H. It was Wolf Larsen's last word. Bosh! Skeptical and invincible to the end. The arm and hand relaxed. The trunk of the body moved slightly. Then there was no movement. Maud released the hand. The fingers spread slightly, falling apart of their own weight, and the pencil rolled away. Do you still hear? I shouted holding the fingers and waiting for the single pressure which would signify yes. There was no response. The hand was dead. I noticed the lips slightly move, Maud said. I repeated the question. The lips moved. She placed the tips of her fingers on them. Again I repeated the question. Yes, Maud announced. We looked at each other expectantly. What good is it? I asked. What can we say now? Oh, ask him. She hesitated. Ask him something that requires no for an answer, I suggested. Then we will know for certainty. Are you hungry? She cried. The lips moved under her fingers, and she answered, Yes. Will you have some beef? Was her next query. No, she announced. Beef tea? Yes, we will have some beef tea she said quietly, looking up at me. Until his hearing goes, we shall be able to communicate with him. And after that... She looked at me queerly. I saw her lips trembling and the tears swimming up in her eyes. She swayed toward me and I caught her in my arms. Oh, Humphrey, she sobbed. When will it all end? I am so tired, so tired. She buried her head on my shoulder her frail form shaken with a storm of weeping. She was like a feather in my arms, so slender, so ethereal. She has broken down at last, I thought. What can I do without her help? But I soothed and comforted her till she pulled herself bravely together and recuperated mentally as quickly as she was wont to do physically. I ought to be ashamed of myself, she said, then added with a whimsical smile I adored, but I am only one small woman. That phrase, the one small woman, startled me like an electric shock. It was my own phrase, my pet secret phrase, my love phrase for her. Where did you get that phrase? I demanded with an abruptness that in turn startled her. What phrase? she asked. One small woman. Is it yours? she asked. Yes, I answered. Mine. I made it. Then you must have talked in your sleep, she smiled. The dancing, tremulous light was in her eyes. Mine, I knew, were speaking beyond the will of my speech. I leaned toward her. Without volition, I leaned toward her, as a tree is swayed by the wind. 
Ah, we were very close together in that moment. But she shook her head as one might shake off sleep or a dream, saying, I have known it all my life. It was my father's name for my mother. It is my phrase, too, I said stubbornly. For your mother? No, I answered, and she questioned no further, though I could have sworn her eyes retained for some time a mocking, teasing expression. With the foremast in, the work now went on apace. Almost before I knew it, and without one serious hitch, I had the mainmast stepped. A derrick boom, rigged to the foremast, had accomplished this, and several days more found all stays and shrouds in place and everything set up taut. Topsails would be a nuisance and a danger for a crew of two, so I heaved the topmast on deck and lashed them fast. Several more days were consumed in finishing the sails and putting them on. There were only three, the jib, foresail, and mainsail, and patched, shortened, and distorted, they were a ridiculously ill-fitting suit for so trim a craft as the ghost. But they'll work, Maud cried jubilantly. We'll make them work and trust our lives to them. Certainly among my many new trades, I shone least as a sailmaker. I could sail them better than make them, and I had no doubt of my power to bring the schooner to some northern port of Japan. In fact, I had crammed navigation from textbooks aboard, and besides, there was Wolf Larsen's star scale, so simple a device that a child could work it. As for its inventor, beyond an increasing deafness and the movement of his lips growing fainter and fainter, there had been little change in his condition for a week. But on the day we finished bending the schooner's sails, he heard his last, and the last movement of his lips died away. But not before I had asked him, Are you all there? And the lips had answered, Yes. The last line was down. Somewhere within that tomb of the flesh still dwelt the soul of the man. Walled by the living clay, that fierce intelligence we had known burned on but it burned on in silence and darkness, and it was disembodied. To that intelligence there could be no objective knowledge of a body. It knew no body. The very world was not. It knew only itself and the vastness and profundity of the quiet and the dark. End of chapter 38 In the Public Domain the Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 39 The day came for our departure. There was no longer anything to detain us on Endeavor Island. The ghost's stumpy masts were in place, her crazy sails bent. All my handiwork was strong, none of it beautiful, but I knew it would work, and I felt myself a man of power as I looked at it. I did it! I did it with my own hands! I did it! I wanted to cry aloud. But Maud and I had a way of voicing each other's thoughts, and she said, as we prepared to hoist the mainsail, To think, Humphrey, you did it all with your own hands. But there were two other hands, I answered. Two small hands, and don't say that was a phrase also of your father. She laughed and shook her head, and held her hands up for inspection. I can never get them clean again, she wailed nor soften the weather-beat. Then dirt and weather-beat shall be your guerdon of honor, 
I said, holding them in mine, and, in spite of my resolutions, I would have kissed the two dear hands had she not swiftly withdrawn them. Our comradeship was becoming tremulous. I had mastered my love long and well, but now it was mastering me. Willfully had it disobeyed and won my eyes to speech, and now it was winning my tongue, I and my lips, for they were mad this moment to kiss the two small hands which had toiled so faithfully and hard. And I too was mad. There was a cry in my being like bugles calling me to her, and there was a wind blowing upon me which I could not resist, swaying the very body of me, till I leaned toward her, all unconscious that I leaned. And she knew it. She could not but know it, as she swiftly drew away her hands, and yet could not forbear one quick searching look before she turned away her eyes. By means of deck tackles, I had arranged to carry the halyards forward to the windlass, and now I hoisted the mainsail, peak, and throat at the same time. It was a clumsy way, but it did not take long, and soon the foresail as well was up and fluttering. We can never get that anchor up in this narrow place once it has left the bottom, I said. We should be on the rocks first. What can you do? she asked. Slip it, was my answer. And when I do, you must do your first work on the windlass. I shall have to run at once to the wheel, and at the same time you must be hoisting the jib. This maneuver of getting underway I had studied and worked out a score of times. And with the jib halyard to the windlass, I knew Maud was capable of hoisting that most necessary sail. A brisk wind was blowing into the cove, and though the water was calm, rapid work was required to get us safely out. When I knocked the shackle bolt loose, the chain roared out through the hawse hole and into the sea. I raced aft, putting the wheel up. The ghost seemed to start into life as she heeled to the first fill of her sails. The jib was rising. As it filled, the ghost's bow swung off, and I had to put the wheel down a few spokes and steady her. I had devised an automatic jib sheet, which passed the jib across of itself, so there was no need for Maud to attend to that, but she was still hoisting the jib when I put the wheel hard down. It was a moment of anxiety, for the ghost was rushing directly upon the beach, a stone's throw distant, but she swung obediently on her heel into the wind. There was a great fluttering and flapping of canvas and reef points, most welcome to my ears. Then she filled away on the other tack. Maud had finished her task and come aft where she stood beside me, a small cap perched on her wind-blown hair, her cheeks flushed from exertion, her eyes wide and bright with the excitement, her nostrils quivering to the rush and bite of the fresh salt air. Her brown eyes were like a startled deer's, there was a wild, keen look in them I had never seen before, and her lips parted and her breath suspended as the ghost, charging upon the wall of rock at the entrance to the inner cove, swept into the wind and filled away into safe water. My first mate's berth on the sealing grounds stood me in good stead, and I cleared the inner cove and laid a long tack along the shore of the outer cove. Once again about, and the ghost headed out to open sea. She had now caught the bosom-breathing of the ocean, and was herself a breath with the rhythm of it as she smoothly mounted and slipped down each broad-backed wave. 
The day had been dull and overcast, but the sun now burst through the clouds, a welcome omen, and shone upon the curving beach where together we had dared the lords of the harem and slain the Hollis Chickie. All Endeavor Island brightened under the sun. Even the grim southwestern promontory showed less grim, and here and there, where the sea spray wet its surface, highlights flashed and dazzled in the sun. I shall always think of it with pride, I said to Maud. She threw her head back in a queenly way, but said, Dear, dear Endeavor Island, I shall always love it. And I, I said quickly. It seems our eyes must meet in a great understanding. And yet, loath, they struggled away and did not meet. There was a silence I might almost call awkward, till I broke it, saying, See those black clouds to windward. Remember I told you last night the barometer was falling. And the sun is gone, she said, her eyes still fixed upon our island, where we had proved our mastery over matter and attained to the truest comradeship that may fall to man and woman. And it's slack off the sheets for Japan, I cried gaily. A fair wind and a flowing sheet, you know, or however it goes. Lashing the wheel, I ran forward, eased the fore and main sheets, took in on the boom tackles, and trimmed everything for the quartering breeze which was ours. It was a fresh breeze, very fresh, but I resolved to run as long as I dared. Unfortunately, when running free, it is impossible to lash the wheel. So I faced an all-night watch. Maud insisted on relieving me, but proved she had not the strength to steer in a heavy sea, even if she could have gained the wisdom on such short notice. She appeared quite heartbroken over the discovery, but recovered her spirits by coiling down tackles and halyards and all stray ropes. Then there were meals to be cooked in the galley, beds to make, Wolf Larsen to be attended upon, and she finished the day with a grand house-cleaning attack upon the cabin and steerage. All night I steered without relief, the wind slowly and steadily increasing and the sea rising. At five in the morning, Maud brought me hot coffee and biscuits she had baked, and at seven, a substantial and piping hot breakfast put new lift into me. Throughout the day, and as slowly and steadily as ever, the wind increased. It impressed one with its sullen determination to blow, and blow harder, and keep on blowing. And still the ghost foamed along, racing off the miles till I was certain she was making at least eleven knots. It was too good to lose, but by nightfall I was exhausted. Though in splendid physical trim, a thirty-six hour trick at the wheel was the limit of my endurance. Besides, Maud begged me to heave too. And I knew, if the wind and sea increased at the same rate during the night, that it would soon be impossible to heave to. So as twilight deepened, gladly and at the same time reluctantly, I brought the ghost up on the wind. But I had not reckoned upon the colossal task the reefing of the three sails meant for one man. While running away from the wind, I had not appreciated its force, but when we ceased to run, I learned to my sorrow, and well nigh to my despair, how fiercely it was really blowing. The wind balked my every effort, ripping the canvas out of my hands, and in an instant undoing what I had gained by ten minutes of severest struggle. At eight o'clock, I had succeeded only in putting the second reef into the foresail. At eleven o'clock, I was no farther along. 
Blood dripped from every finger end, while the nails were broken to the quick. From pain and sheer exhaustion, I wept in the darkness, secretly, so that Maude should not know. Then, in desperation, I abandoned the attempt to reef the mainsail, and resolved to try the experiment of heaving to under the close-reefed foresail. Three hours more were required to gasket the mainsail and jib, and at two in the morning, nearly dead, the life almost buffeted and worked out of me, I had barely sufficient consciousness to know the experiment was a success. The close-reefed foresail worked. The ghost clung on close to the wind and betrayed no inclination to fall off broadside to the trough. I was famished, but Maud tried vainly to get me to eat. I dozed with my mouth full of food. I would fall asleep in the act of carrying food to my mouth and waken in torment to find the act yet uncompleted. So sleepily helpless was I that she was compelled to hold me in my chair to prevent me being flung to the floor by the violent pitching of the schooner. Of the passage from the galley to the cabin, I knew nothing. It was a sleepwalker Maud guided and supported. In fact, I was aware of nothing till I awoke, how long after I could not imagine, in my bunk with my boots off. It was dark, I was stiff and lame, and I cried out with pain when the bedclothes touched my poor finger ends. Morning had evidently not come, so I closed my eyes and went to sleep again. I did not know it, but I had slept the clock around and it was night again. Once more I woke, troubled because I could sleep no better. I struck a match and looked at my watch. It marked midnight, and I had not left the deck until three. I should have been puzzled had I not guessed the solution. No wonder I was sleeping brokenly. I had slept twenty-one hours. I listened for a while to the behavior of the ghosts, to the pounding of the seas and the muffled roar of the wind on deck, and then turned over on my side and slept peacefully until morning. When I arose at seven, I saw no sign of Maud and concluded she was in the galley preparing breakfast. On deck I found the ghost doing splendidly under her patch of canvas, but in the galley, though a fire was burning and water boiling, I found no Maud. I discovered her in the steerage by Wolf Larsen's bunk. I looked at him, the man who had been hurled down from the topmost pitch of life to be buried alive and be worse than dead. There seemed a relaxation of his expressionless face, which was new. Maud looked at me, and I understood. His life flickered out in the storm, I said. But he still lives, she answered, infinite faith in her voice. He had too great strength. Yes, she said, but now it no longer shackles him. He is a free spirit. He is a free spirit, surely, I answered and taking her hand, I led her on deck. The storm broke that night, which is to say that it diminished as slowly as it had arisen. After breakfast next morning, when I had hoisted Wolf Larsen's body on deck ready for burial, it was still blowing heavily and a large sea was running. The deck was continually awash with the sea, which came inboard over the rail and through the scuppers. The wind smote the schooner with a sudden gust, and she heeled over till her lee rail was buried, the roar in her rigging rising in pitch to a shriek. We stood in the water to our knees as I bared my head. I remember only one part of the service, I said, and that is, 
and the body shall be cast into the sea. Maud looked at me, surprised and shocked, but the spirit of something I had seen before was strong upon me, impelling me to give service to Wolf Larsen as Wolf Larsen had once given service to another man. I lifted the end of the hatch cover, and the canvas-shrouded body slipped feet first into the sea. The weight of iron dragged it down. It was gone. Goodbye, Lucifer, proud spirit, Maud whispered, so low that it was drowned by the shouting of the wind. But I saw the movement of her lips and knew. As we clung to the lee rail and worked our way aft, I happened to glance to leeward. The ghost at the moment was up-tossed on a sea, and I caught a clear view of a small steamship two or three miles away, rolling and pitching head-on to the sea as it steamed toward us. It was painted black, and from the talk of the hunters of their poaching exploits, I recognized it as a United States revenue cutter. I pointed it out to Maud and hurriedly led her aft to the safety of the poop. I started to rush below to the flag locker, then remembered that in rigging the ghost I had forgotten to make provision for a flag halyard. We need no distress signal, Maud said. They have only to see us. We are saved, I said, soberly and solemnly. And then, in an exuberance of joy, I hardly know whether to be glad or not. I looked at her. Our eyes were not loath to meet. We leaned toward each other, and before I knew it, my arms were about her. Need I? I asked. And she answered, There is no need, though the telling of it would be sweet, so sweet. Her lips met the press of mine, and by what strange trick of the imagination I know not, the scene in the cabin of the ghost flashed upon me. When she had pressed her fingers lightly on my lips and said, Hush, hush, my woman, my one small woman, I said, my free hand petting her shoulder in the way all lovers know, though never learn at school. My man, she said, looking at me for an instant with tremulous lids which fluttered down and veiled her eyes as she snuggled her head against my breast with a happy little sigh. I looked toward the cutter. It was very close. A boat was being lowered. One kiss, dear love, I whispered. One kiss more before they come. And rescue us from ourselves, she completed with the most adorable smile, whimsical as I had never seen it, for it was whimsical with love. End of chapter 39 Recording by Nick Bolka End of The Sea Wolf